and the one who opens it should understand clearly the reasons for which it was written. Newman had been accused of insincerity, not only by Kingsley but by many other men, in the public press. His retirement to solitude and meditation at Littlemore had been outrageously misunderstood, and it was openly charged that his conversion was a cunningly devised plot to win a large number of his followers to the Catholic Church. This charge involved others, and it was to defend them, as well as to vindicate himself, that Newman wrote the Apologia, the perfect sincerity with which he traced his religious history showing that his conversion was only the final step in a course he had been following since boyhood, silenced his critics and revolutionized public opinion concerning himself and the church which he had joined, as the revelation of a soul's history, and as a model of pure, simple, and affected English. This book, entirely apart from its doctrinal teaching, deserves a high place in our prose literature, in Newman's doctrinal works, the via media, the grammar of ascent, and in numerous controversial essays the student of literature will have little interest. Much more significant are his sermons, the unconscious reflection of a rare spiritual nature, of which Professor Sharp said, his power shows itself clearly in the new and unlooked-for way in which he touched into a life old truths, moral or spiritual, and as he spoke, how the old truth became new, and how it came home with a meaning never felt before. He laid his finger how gently yet how powerfully on some inner place in the hearer's heart, and told him things about himself he had never known till then, subtlest truths, which would have taken philosophers pages of circumlocution and big words to state, were dropped out by the way in a sentence or two of the most transparent Saxon, of greater interest to the general reader are the idea of a university, discourses delivered at Dublin, and his two works of fiction, loss and gain treating of a man's conversion to Catholicism, and Callisted, which island in his own words, an attempt to express the feelings and mutual relations of Christians and heathens in the middle of the third century, the latter island in our judgment, the most readable and interesting of Newman's works, the character of Callisted, a beautiful Greek sculptor of idols, is powerfully delineated, the style is clear and transparent as air and the story of the heroine's conversion and death makes one of the most fascinating chapters in fiction, though it is not the story so much as the author's unconscious revelation of himself that charms us. It would be well to read this novel in connection with Kingsley's Hypatia, which attempts to reconstruct the life and ideals of the same period. Newman's poems are not so well known as his prose, but the reader who examines the Lyra Apostolica and verses on various occasions will find many short poems that stir a religious nature profoundly by their pure and lofty imagination, and future generations may pronounce one of these poems, The Dream of Gerontes, to be Newman's most enduring work. This poem aims to reproduce the thoughts and feelings of a man whose soul is just quitting the body, and who is just beginning a new and greater life. Both in style and in thought, The Dream, is a powerful and original poem and is worthy of attention not only for itself but, as a modern critic suggests, as a revelation of that high spiritual purpose which animated Newman's life from beginning to end. Of Newman's style it is as difficult to write as it would be to describe the dress of a gentleman we had met, who was so perfectly dressed that we paid no attention to his clothes. His style is called transparent, because at first we are not conscious of his manner, and inobtrusive, because we never think of Newman himself, but only of the subject he is discussing. He is like the best French prose writers in expressing his thought with such naturalness and apparent ease that, without thinking of style, 
we receive exactly the impression which he means to convey. In his sermons and essays he is wonderfully simple and direct, in his controversial writings, gently ironical and satiric, and the satire is pervaded by a delicate humor, but when his feelings are aroused he speaks with poetic images and symbols, and his eloquence is like that of the Old Testament prophets, like Ruskin's, his style is modeled largely on that of the Bible, but not even Ruskin equals him in the poetic beauty and melody of his sentences. On the whole he comes nearer than any other of his age to our ideal of a perfect prose writer. Other essayists of the Victorian age. We have selected the above five essayists. Macaulay, Carlyle, Arnold, Newman, and Ruskin. As representative writers of the Victorian age. But there are many others who well repay our study. Notable among these are John Addington Simons. Author of the Renaissance in Italy. Undoubtedly his greatest work. And of many critical essays. Walter Pater whose appreciations and numerous other works mark him as one of our best literary critics, and Leslie Stephen, famous for his work on the Monumental Dictionary of National Biography, and for his hours in a library, a series of impartial and excellent criticisms, brightened by the play of an original and delightful humor. Among the most famous writers of the age are the scientists, Lyell, Darwin, Huxley, Spencer, Tyndall, and Wallace, a wonderful group of men whose works, though they hardly belong to our present study, have exercised an incalculable influence on our life and literature. Darwin's Origin of Species 1859, which apparently established the theory of evolution, was an epoch-making book. It revolutionized not only our conceptions of natural history, but also our methods of thinking on all the problems of human society. Those who would read a summary of the greatest scientific discovery of the age will find it in Wallace's Darwinism. A most interesting book, written by the man who claims, with Darwin, the honor of first announcing the principle of evolution, and, from a multitude of scientific works, we recommend also to the general reader Huxley's autobiography and his lay sermons, addresses, and reviews, partly because they are excellent expressions of the spirit and methods of science, and partly because Huxley as a writer is perhaps the clearest and the most readable of the scientists, the spirit of modern literature. As we reflect on the varied work of the Victorian writers, three marked characteristics invite our attention. First, our great literary men, no less than our great scientists, have made truth the supreme object of human endeavor. All these eager poets, novelists, and essayists, questing over so many different ways, are equally intent on discovering the truth of life. Men as far apart as Darwin and Newman are strangely alike in spirit, one seeking truth in the natural the other in the spiritual history of the race. Second, literature has become the mirror of truth, and the first requirement of every serious novel or essay is to be true to the life or the facts which it represents. Third, literature has become animated by a definite moral purpose. It is not enough for the Victorian writers to create or attempt an artistic work for its own sake, the work must have a definite lesson for humanity. The poets are not only singers, but leaders, they hold up an ideal and they compel men to recognize and follow it. The novelists tell a story which pictures human life, and at the same time call us to the work of social reform, or drive home a moral lesson. The essayists are nearly all prophets or teachers, and use literature as the chief instrument of progress and education. Among them all we find comparatively little of the exuberant fancy, the romantic ardor, and the boyish gladness of the Elizabethans. They write books not primarily to delight the artistic sense, 
but to give bread to the hungry and water to the thirsty in soul. Milton's famous sentence, A good book is the precious lifeblood of a master spirit, might be written across the whole Victorian era. We are still too near these writers to judge how far their work suffers artistically from their practical purpose, but this much is certain, that whether or not they created immortal works, their books have made the present world a better and a happier place to live in, and that is perhaps the best that can be said of the work of any artist or artisan. Summary of the Victorian Age The year 1830 is generally placed at the beginning of this period, but its limits are very indefinite. In general we may think of it as covering the reign of Victoria 1837-1901. Historically the age is remarkable for the growth of democracy following the Reform Bill of 1832, for the spread of education among all classes, for the rapid development of the arts and sciences, for important mechanical inventions, and for the enormous extension of the bounds of human knowledge by the discoveries of science. At the accession of Victoria the Romantic movement had spent its force. Wordsworth had written his best work, the other Romantic poets, Coleridge, Shelley, Keats, and Byron, had passed away, and for a time no new development was apparent in English poetry. Though the Victorian age produced two great poets, Tennyson and Browning, the age, as a whole, is remarkable for the variety and excellence of its prose. A study of all the great writers of the period reveals four general characteristics. One literature in this age has come very close to daily life, reflecting its practical problems and interests, and is a powerful instrument of human progress. To the tendency of literature is strongly ethical, all the great poets, novelists, and essayists of the age are moral teachers. Three science in this age exercises an incalculable influence. On the one hand it emphasizes truth as the sole object of human endeavor, it has established the principle of law throughout the universe and it has given us an entirely new view of life, as summed up in the word, evolution, that island the principle of growth or development from simple to complex forms. On the other hand, its first effect seems to be to discourage works of the imagination. Though the age produced an incredible number of books, very few of them belong among the great creative works of literature. For though the age is generally characterized as practical and materialistic, it is significant that nearly all the writers whom the nation delights to honor vigorously attack materialism, and exalt a purely ideal conception of life. On the whole, we are inclined to call this an idealistic age fundamentally, since love, truth, justice, brotherhood all great ideals are emphasized as the chief ends of life, not only by its poets but also by its novelists and essayists. In our study we have considered, one the poets, the life and works of Tennyson and Browning, and the chief characteristics of the minor poets, Elizabeth Barrett Mrs. Browning, Rossetti, Morris, and Swinburne, to the novelists, the life and works of Dickens, Thackeray, and George Eliot, and the chief works of Charles Reed, Anthony Trollope, Charlotte Bronte, Bulwer Lytton, Kinsley, Mrs. Gaskell, Blackmore, George Meredith, Hardy, and Stevenson. 3. The Essayists, The Life and Works of Macaulay, Matthew Arnold, Carlyle, Newman, and Ruskin. These were selected, from among many essayists and miscellaneous writers, as most typical of the Victorian age. The great scientists, like Lyell, Darwin, Huxley, Wallace, Tyndall, and Spencer, hardly belong to our study of literature, though their works are of vast importance and we omit the works of living writers who belong to the present rather than to the past century.